Hello and welcome to the Still Figuring It Out podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Sigmund, and I don't have it all figured out, but I'm on an adventure to keep learning and keep growing, and I invite you to join me. Well, I am so excited to introduce to you today my friend Alex. There have been some people that I've met over my life that just learning their stories and getting to know them personally has completely changed my life in some way. Something about hearing their life stories, their experiences have helped me to, to, to really continue to reshape my perspective, to expand my perspective uh, on how I view the world, how I view other people, and really how I come to understand what it is that we are here to do. So Alex Marshall went from uh, being a visitor at our church and at our food pantry with his family uh, just a couple years ago to now leading our recovery outreach program. So he is a recovering addict, and his addiction has led him uh, in his life down a path of criminal activity where he has served time in prison. He's had experiences with gang activity in prison. He is a survivor of child abuse, He's overcome so much in his life, and his story is so multifaceted that we're actually going to split this up into a few episodes. So really, this first episode, this first conversation, is focused on uh, what really led up to Alex's struggles with addiction, a little bit of the backstory. So I feel like the more we can come to understand what leads someone down this path, the more we can understand the underlying causes and issues, the more we can discover these things, perhaps we can then help others out earlier. Perhaps we can kind of swim upstream a little more, if you will. So Alex is a husband to a wonderful person named Kara. He has two adorable little girls. He is an active leader in our church and in the community up here and in his workplace. So to know Alex is to be his friend and is to love him. On the other hand, if you were just to look at Alex on paper, if you were to just look at his criminal record, his record from the past, People, judges, officers, employers, people could see this as a person to stay away from, a person who is dangerous, a person who you could not trust or hire or be around. So what I want us to see is that no single story really tells the whole truth about a person. But I have come to see Alex's as a story of redemption, of transformation, and of astronomical personal growth and inspiration, and he is an inspiration to me. So with that intro, I am excited now to share our conversation uh, between me and Alex. Well, Alex, I'm just really happy that you are willing to have this conversation with me. 
of course, you and I are good friends. We've known each other now for, gosh, I don't know, uh, about it. Two years, yeah. I guess. Yeah, um, it feels like we, I've known you so much <laughs> longer, and I think that's just because we've shared so much uh, with one another and and some really uh, hard things <laughs> in life together. So I feel like we've known each other for even longer. But uh, over the past two years, I've really enjoyed um, not just getting to know more about your story, but just seeing how. Um, how all of the things that you have been through have really shaped you now uh, to be the person that you are and that you are giving back in such an amazing way to our community and helping other people overcome things that you have overcome. So just to give people an, kind of an introduction of, of who you are and what you've been through, uh, how do you begin to even tell your story? Yeah, so uh, my name is Alex Marshall and... Um, I'm 34 years old now. I've been sober now for almost two years. It'll be two years, August the 28th. And, um, yeah, so I started um, using uh, about, um, I would say, about the age of 12 or 13 when I started using, like, just marijuana daily. I started, uh, you know, smoking pot through high school, and um, it led to me you know, to being open to trying other things. I wasn't much into alcohol um, in high school, but um, I was also uh, diagnosed with uh, ADHD, ADD, and um, bipolar disorder. And so I was also prescribed um, lots of uh, different uh, psychological medications from the time I was like, probably in the second or third grade I start, started on like Ritalin, Metadate and Depakote and um, so I actually became pretty dependent on those medications as well and I feel like that you know that also led to me you know feeling like I had to have something every day to function because I think that that's kind of uh, the idea that was put in my head at a very young age and um yeah so i i had a a, a good childhood I, I i can remember you know uh, you know playing sports playing soccer football wrestling on the swim team um you know soccer was by far my my favorite um and i had my parents coach the uh, ayso soccer uh teams I actually helped start that in our community whenever i was um in, in elementary school, probably six or seven, I can remember that uh, very well. And, um, you know, I tried to um, have as much of a normal life with this background of addiction that I knew was in my family. Um, as I got older, I started to realize more and more of uh, how, I guess, um, how out of control uh, the alcohol drinking and other things that were going on around me were. I had two older siblings and my brother was actually about 10 years older than me and so he left off to college about the time I left uh, elementary school. So we spent a lot of time together when I was really young and I really looked up to him and so 
when he left, I feel like I was almost trying to fill that void of a uh, just a, a figure in my life, someone to look up to. Unfortunately, um, my sister was a few years older than me, and she started uh, before I did uh, doing other drugs, and she had uh, a boyfriend that um, was selling cocaine and other stuff like that. And so, of course, um, you know, I was drawn uh, to that person. I thought that was like a really cool thing that, you know, he had this money, he was selling these drugs, all these people wanted to be around them all the time. And so I quickly uh, adapted, you know, that persona, I guess, of this uh, person, um, you know, that I, I really knew I wasn't, but, you know, I, I wanted to be. Um, you know, uh, I don't know the best way to say it, but uh, the attention. I was uh, definitely like uh, codependent, and so I, I wanted the attention um, all the time. And you know, being like the bad, the bad boy, I guess in school and uh, mostly in high school, you know, I, it got, got me a lot of attention. Um, I started using like. Uh, some uh, pain pills just like some prescription pain pills like uh, hydrocodones and like Vicodin, Percocet things like that I started using those in high school and um, that also led to me to being more open to trying new things and and then that led to me of probably about uh, 15 or 16 trying uh, cocaine for the first time and uh, cocaine became like my best friend uh, you know I w was using it selling it um, you know and I I thought it made me like the coolest person uh, you know in the room at all the time uh, because of you know the, the attraction that it had uh, and the people that it surrounded me with that I thought were all my friends but really um, you know they just you know wanted what I had and so that you know just not getting the attention I guess that I needed at, at home led to me seeking this attention out from from other ways but um, you know I, my parents ne never missed a ball practice or a ball game um, like I, I can't uh, not a, not one time did my dad miss a football practice there's not one uh, ball game that my mom and dad did, didn't show up to or at least one of them my mother taught so sometimes she was you know late but you know I, they tried uh, their best to be a part of everything it was really just I think like the uns being un, unsupervised the lack of supervision and uh, being allowed to just kind of do what I wanted to do um, and really just not having any rules that just kind of led to my addiction really just spiraling out of control. Um, and after I graduated high school, um, you know, all of that, like the coolest person in high school, that, all that goes away. Like the moment I graduated high school and high school was over, that, that stuff went away. And so um, I quickly, um, I guess increase the uh, amount of drugs that I, I started doing about that time about 17 or 18 um, I really um, started using uh, every day um, 
and at first it was just you know uh, like I said Percocets and uh, hydrocodone and stuff like that and, and of course cocaine um, but then um, I was introduced to Oxycontin uh, and morphine probably um, about 17 or 18 and um, the opiates quickly over overruled the, the cocaine and um, so yeah the that opiate addiction started really young and uh, quickly grabbed me and um, the thing about opiates is is once you get addicted to them it's not something that you can casually do on the weekends it's something that you have to have every day to function or you're sick and so um, that's basically how my addiction got started and that's what led to the later on uh, switching to heroin uh, when they kind of took the Oxycontin off the shelf and uh, it they came, became harder to get a hold of, um, of course led to the heroin addiction. But um, that's really, I guess, a, a, a short summary of kind of the steps that my addiction took. Um, you know. So when you said that, um, you know, you, you had a fairly normal childhood you you felt like your parents were attending a lot of your your games and that sort of thing when did you when did you first realize that addiction was actually a part of of your family um so i i would say um late middle school uh probably seventh and eighth grade ninth grade um i did realize that my uh you know parents definitely were drinking too much and um, it, I knew that they drank every night and uh, I do know that you know they they were dealing with um, a lot of problems I guess that were going on in our family um, but I did realize probably about late middle school early high school that alcoholism was definitely uh, a problem within my family and I also was seeing my brother uh, time to time he was at uh, ETSU which is in Johnson City and it was a quite a, uh, a distance away from where we lived but um, I knew that he was uh, drinking a lot then too so do you feel like um, from what you know now about addiction and what leads people to to really seek out these these drugs do you feel like that there was something you were trying to cover up? Was there some kind of pain in your life? Or did you feel like there was some kind of imbalance in your mood that you were trying to almost kind of self-medicate? Yeah, so I definitely think that there was a combination of those things. So um, bef I'd say like kindergarten, first grade, um, I was uh, dealing with um, some sexual abuse and it wasn't something that I, my parents know, knew about. It was with a close friend of theirs and so I was dealing with that and um, that went on for a, quite a while. Um, some red flags came up and so we stopped associating with that family completely. Um, but then again um, that's another situation of the same started about 
uh, about seventh grade in the middle school, when I was in middle school, um, another situation uh, started um, with a kid that was you know, three years older than me. Um, and I guess just like thinking that like that attention was uh, that that person was giving me, uh, I guess I was like really seeking that out. They were a real a real popular kid in school, mm-hmm. and everybody just thought they were the coolest. Their family had like a um, back when they were still uh, movie rental places. Uh, their family owned one in town, and so like. Uh, he w- he had his own commercial that was on TV, like you know, and so everybody in uh, school thought that that was like you know the coolest person in the world, and and uh, so we we became friends first, of course, and then um, then the 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 sexual stuff started again, and so I think that I was really fighting this questioning of my sexuality because I knew it was wrong what happened to me whenever I was really young and that was from an adult um, but then when that second part started um, with with a person that was older even though they were older than me and they were you know kind of coaching me and and saying uh, you know I won't be your friend no more if you don't do this or do that I still knew that it was wrong. It wasn't something I was supposed to be doing, but I I wanted to be their friend and I wanted to please them so much that, um, and I almost got to a point where I couldn't tell whether if I was enjoying it anymore myself. So I was definitely questioning my sexuality. I had I had a girlfriend, you know, all the time, you know, through school. So. I, I was dating girls and secretly having this um, this gay um, you know side relationship type thing going on, and I was definitely trying to cover that up. Well, but and that it doesn't sound like that was necessarily consensual, was it? It it wasn't at all consensual when it started. Um, like I said, I, I think he was about three or four years older than me. Uh, his father actually was the head coach of the high school soccer team where I live and so they uh, started the like we would scrimmage with them with the middle school soccer team and that's how we kind of connected or kind of met and I I was actually uh, really good at soccer I played on some traveling teams Um, and so we didn't play on the same team but we actually played uh, for the same uh, we weren't on the same uh, age group, but we played for some of the same traveling teams. So I seen a lot of that family, and um, I almost feel like I was vulnerable, and somehow he was able to to see that. But um, it was not all consensual when it started, and but before I knew it, it was definitely uh, you know just out of control. I guess is the best way to explain it. But had had um, did you feel like you had anybody you could tell that to, or is this something that you knew you needed to keep a secret? So I definitely thought that I needed to keep it a secret. I know that from the past experience of, of what happened to me when I was really little, 
Um, I was always really scared of, of people finding out because I didn't want people to look at me a certain way. Also, I w grew up in a Baptist church, and so um, also thought that you know if um, you know people found out that I was gay, not only did I think that I was damned to hell, I thought that you know people were gonna you know judge me, um, wow. and I wasn't sure of my sexuality at that time I did I just you know it was really confusing on uh, what was going on so and, and I definitely think that you know that was you know what I was trying to cover up yeah well yeah so you you felt like um, you know these things happened to you so it wasn't like you were seeking this out or trying to get this but these things happened to you but it made you feel then like something was wrong with you definitely so yeah i definitely felt like something was wrong with me um and then you didn't feel like you could turn to the church because you thought they would judge you definitely not and what about family i mean you felt like you couldn't tell them either yeah so um i once had came home and got my ears pierced and uh my grandfather god bless his soul has passed away now but uh he told me um he called me a, a, slander, a slander name towards uh, the LBGTQ community. I won't uh, say what he called me um, and demanded that I take those out or I'll leave. And so mm -hmm. um, I knew how, uh, I knew the opinion that was um, instilled in their minds about that. So you knew, you knew that your family would not be approving. Right. So, but even, even at the fact that uh, I mean, you were you were being abused. I mean, somebody was taking advantage of you, and this is this is obviously a, a wrong thing. But you felt that because some because you were engaged in that in some way, that you weren't allowed to turn to anybody for help because you didn't want to be seen as uh, what a, a sinner, or something. A, a, yeah. So or some something or worse. Uh, yeah. So I guess it's being. Um, called a sinner was the worst of my fears because uh, I, I definitely just didn't feel comfortable turning to anybody in my family. Um, I didn't want to be judged. Plus, for some reason, I was also like, I thought I was going to be in trouble. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I was worried about being in trouble. Um, now a lot of these things have came to light. And of course, my family knows like everything that was going on. And why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us? But in my, my mind, I'm thinking, well, why didn't you notice that these things were happening? Like, mm. you know, I felt like, I almost felt like if they were paying enough attention, uh, that they would have been able to see that, you know, something, there was something going on there. So th that's a good point. So, you know, I, I know from my time with uh, scouts and in the church, you know, we when we learn anything about sexual abuse, it's typically going to happen with someone who actually is in kind of close relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not It's not just always stranger danger or, you know, Lester with a van who pulls up with candy. It's typically somebody yeah. who is either, you know, a friend or family mm -hmm. or volunteers with your, with a kid. So for, for, for all of us who have kids in our lives who we care about, what kinds of things do we need to be looking out for and how, you know, what, because this, this is a big, a big problem. Yeah, so, um, 
you know, they were definitely really good manipulators and very good at uh, coming off as like, I'm going to take care of your son. We'll look out for your son at school and I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, help your son learn how to be a better soccer player. Uh, you know, by the time he gets to high school, you know, you know, he was basically coaching my parents at the same time he was coaching me. But I think Gr grooming, grooming as, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. definitely. And it was all, you know, like I said, we were we started off as friends. It didn't. Mm -hmm. This wasn't something that happened first. But I definitely think that some things that are those are some warning signs to look out for is when when someone's a, you know telling you how they're gonna uh, if it's an old much older and even a few years older makes a big difference when you're that age, but. Anytime that someone's wanting to spend that much time with your kid, I think there should be some red flags or at least be on the lookout. Not everybody's a predator, but there are plenty of them out there. And also, uh, when I would come home, like I would go through bouts of depression. And so my family would think that it had something to do like psychologically uh, taking me to the doctor and like saying, thinking I needed my meds changed. Um, but I would, I can remember just like sleeping and not wanting to get out of the bed for days, you know, at a time. And um, also, you know, self-medicating. So, you know, I think that it's so hard to say like, if this is happening or this is happening, you know, you're there. there's definitely something going on. It's like, I think there's a combination of things and I think it's best to be, just be vigilant uh, and be on the lookout. But I, the people that are going to do the things like that, especially the the kid, the older kids, I think that they are going to groom the family just as much as they're grooming the child. And so I think that's definitely something to watch out for because they are very assuring that they're helping with whatever it may be. You know, it was always. Uh, Alex is gonna stay at my house this weekend, and we're gonna work. Uh, we, we're gonna work on his, uh, you know, his shot or his kick and or his, you know, whatever you know with doing dealing with soccer uh, was always his reasoning for wanting me to stay, you know, at his house all weekend. And you know that. And if I think if your child is that attached to a much older person, like. There's definitely a, a reason, or there, you know, there's definitely good enough. Good, I wouldn't say a reason, good enough reason for you to be vigilant and at least investigate, and or you know, ask your child. I think that's also important. Mm. I think it's important to have those conversations with your children and let them know what is right, what is wrong, and also uh, just ask your child if like. Is, is this person doing these types of things to you? I can't remember one time uh, of my parents asking me ever uh, throughout my childhood, has anyone touched you or done these types of things to you? So I think having that close enough relationship where your kid feels comfortable talking to you about things, mm -hmm. that before they get to the level of being abused, the, the red flags will your kid will see the red flags and come to you and mm -hmm. let you know like this is going on but I definitely think having that close enough relationship that your kid trusts you enough to come to you whenever they see a problem yeah yeah definitely 
So do you think from from your battles with addiction and now uh, in recovery ministry and, and leading our recovery group, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of uh, friends and uh, people who you know who are currently struggling or have struggled in the past with addiction. Do you see? Do you feel like that's part of the pattern that you see that people who are struggling with addiction may have had some type of childhood trauma, something happened to them when they were younger, whether it was abuse or neglect or just some hardship mm-hmm. is that is that pretty typical yeah so absolutely so you know i was actually talking to uh, a specialist uh, addiction specialist uh, and i see see them once a week and um been doing that for almost two years now um and in the medical field at least in the in like the psych medical field they believe they say at least three out of every four addicts are suffering from some type of mental illness or trauma, and trauma and that does include like PTSD or you know some type of abuse. So there's definitely a pattern. Uh, mental health, like is you know there's a lot more awareness that's coming up on mental health, but I think that mental health is a lot of times misdiagnosed because as as with me you initially take your kid to your family physician and that's where you know if you think your kid is suffering from some type of mental health uh, problem um, usually it's a family physician that diagnoses them and I think a lot of time people get misdiagnosed and also they get over prescribed or prescribed the wrong types of medications and so I think that that often has has a part to do with it too. But there definitely is a pattern, and I would say that three out of four uh, is probably not even close. I would almost say that four out of four people that are suffering from addiction are trying to numb or cover up some type of trauma or some type of you know mental illness. Yeah. Wow. So do you feel like that that also means part of recovery? is having to figure out how to deal with a lot of this past pain and trauma and do you think that currently the way we handle uh, people who are de- dealing with addiction and stuff are are we addressing those needs so i definitely think it's getting better um i remember like one of the first rehabs that i was court ordered to when i was probably 18 or 19 um was you know just a regular uh you know, just for addiction, a uh, regular uh, addiction detox type uh, place. But dual diagnosis treatment centers are becoming uh, more and more frequent. Uh, I guess, I don't know if the places are changing um, and so they can handle dual diagnosis, but I definitely think that um, the way that addiction was being approached um i definitely think that it's getting better as far as like that they're realizing that there's usually some type of mental health uh problem going on there as well and so i definitely think that the dual diagnosis treatment centers are getting a lot better equipped to handle people that are suffering from addiction because once people are you know detoxed and uh, you have those toxins and drugs removed from their body, then they're 
like just them and they're stuck to deal with those problems all on their own and their mind is like you know functioning normal I won't say normal but but functioning um, and then everything kind of hits them at once all these new emotions and emotions and feelings so I think that it, that there definitely has to be that mental health component because even if someone is uh, you know the exception and suffering from addiction and goes and gets clean they haven't had like the your I think it's the frontal cortex that's been explained to me doesn't operate correctly whenever you're using but whenever you pull that drug or alcohol away and your brain starts working uh, correctly you haven't felt those type of feelings and emotions and um, all that stuff's been numbed away so I definitely think that you know being able to learn coping mechanisms and uh, coping skills um, are definitely very important to being able to be successful in recovery. Yeah, yeah. So as I, as I hear your story, I'm I'm wondering about you know you as a kid. If you you know what what do you wish you had known? I guess is is there when you started to then have the the depression and sleeping all the time i mean what what do you feel like you could have helped you was it was it more about i guess what would have helped your your mental health uh if you even could have possibly known yeah uh, so i definitely think that um if i would have went and seen a professional psychiatrist instead of my family doctor uh, di- uh, diagnosing me and prescribing my medications I feel like a, a psychiatrist could have better diagnosed me and uh, seeing if I could have been um, seeing a therapist at that point mm. I feel like some of the things that were going on could have been pulled out of me as a child and that therapist could have you know been able to work with me and some of this stuff might have came out earlier and we could have, you know, probably dealt with some of those things, and it, it probably wouldn't have continued just to to grow and grow and grow uh, inside of me. Um, so I definitely think that, you know, if I could have seen the appropriate type of physician, like I said, a psychiatrist, and being able to see a therapist, um, because knowing that I was suffering from mental health, and I, I think it would have been very helpful. Yeah. So I think what what I'm really hearing you say is, we we think that physical health is is all we really need for ourselves and for our kids, but really we need uh, we should have multiple uh, resources. We should be we should not only see our family doctor, but we should we should be doing more for for our mental health for ourselves and for our kids, even pre- preventatively. Uh, in the same way that we do like yearly physicals and, and things. Absolutely. That, that maybe that should be uh, something that we have more often as just kind of the, the new normal yeah. of learning how to, <laughs> to, to function. I think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with having like maybe not like routinely as much as seeing your family doctor, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with having mental health evaluations, mm-hmm. even for your children. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with your letting your child see a therapist. Even if you're, you know, doing the best you can as a parent and, you know, you, you 
your kids having uh, you know good grades in school and and making good friends and all that you know you never know really what's going on behind the scenes and a lot of times um, you know your kids don't want to let you down and they feel like by letting you know that something you know might be going on at school they might be getting bullied or uh, whatever the circumstance might be they feel like they are letting you down if they let you know because that's that's how I felt like if I was to tell my parents what was going on that I was going to let them down or be in trouble but I I think that you know there like seeing a, a therapist uh, you know it there's nothing wrong with it I, and I think that you know we should like kind of take that um I guess change the change the perspective and take that stigma off of mental health and like just um, be more um, willing to allow our children to see these people that specialize in this and there might not be nothing going on but they might be able to build a relationship with a therapist and if there is they'd be a lot more likely to be able to pull that out of them yeah for sure yeah it does sound like you know, even you as a young person, uh, were trying. You were just trying to avoid being seen negatively. Yeah. And I think we we still do that with issues of mental illness and addiction. Is we just uh, we really uh, there's so much stigma. And what I'm hearing is, you know, what led you to these things is a lot more about what happened to you, what was done to you, and then you just trying to figure out how to how to numb that, yeah, that pain absolutely. and I guess um, maybe and maybe part of it and I, I was curious about this because you did say that there were some people in your life who were kind of in a maybe a, a drug kind of culture or subculture was there an aspect of that that also seemed kind of cool to you absolutely so that was like my out was becoming like uh, you know I came from a like a upper middle class family uh, my grandmother was a county court clerk uh, in the county I lived in for you know 30 plus years um, but that that culture uh, definitely was like amusing to me and like uh, it, it, uh, it definitely was like um, attractive to me um, and so yeah and um, it was an out for me it that just being involved in like that whole, culture of uh selling drugs and and you know being involved in and and something bigger than myself it's like mm. we all want to be a part of something mm. um and i think it's better that we direct our kids to be a part of something that's positive mm -hmm. but you know if we're not careful you know all kids and all people all all even as an adult we all want to be a part of something i'm glad now that i'm wanting to be a part of something positive like you know the church community and this recovery outreach but I've always wanted to be a part of something and that's just like in our DNA you know mm -hmm. so that culture was definitely you know attractive to me uh, but it was definitely negative um, mm -hmm. you know it wasn't something that you know was gonna help me prosper and grow um, spiritually uh, definitely um, it, it just made my problems worse but it definitely made me look cooler you know hmm. to my peers and that was more important to me than anything and oh. I think that getting away from that like 
that is the perspective that I see even now having a, a child at 16 is it's more important to be cool than it is to make good grades. Mm -hmm. It's more important to be cool than it is to be nice to everyone at school. Like, you know, I just think trying to find a way to change the perspective <laughs> of children, which that's a really hard thing to do. Um, but you know, it's really important. And, uh, it's definitely like on us to, you know, try to raise our kids differently. Um, you know, then, I guess raise my for me to raise my children differently than I was raised, but we definitely need to treat everybody nice, and that doesn't matter how much someone has or how how much or how less or what they're wearing or you know all that stuff to kids is so important. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, none of that stuff matters, you know. So yeah, definitely. I'm curious. Did you have something called a dare? program at your school yeah so we did have a dare program but the dare program at our school was an elementary school right um and yeah i definitely learned about drugs yeah what what did how effective was that so i think that it was like it for me it wasn't effective at all it just to me it was amusing it mm. was like wow like this stuff exists I think that D.A.R.E. is not a bad program, but I think that uh, maybe that's not the right grade, right age to have it. I think maybe uh, D.A.R.E. should be aimed more towards middle school when kids start being introduced to drugs. And I definitely think that, uh, you know, we can definitely reform some of the ways that uh, programs like that are used and, like, you know... Um, it could be a lot more effective. Um, you know, a, a police officer was the one that come, comes to the school and does all that. But I think having uh, someone that uh, has been through addiction and through recovery coming and, and telling that story and being a part of D.A.R.E. would be a, uh, be a lot better than a police officer just telling you what drugs are and just say no. Yeah, I, so my son uh, just finished sixth grade, and they did D.A.R.E. Uh, at sixth grade. And I was having a similar conversation recently with some similar ideas and thoughts that it seems like the first thing that our kids should be taught is about mental health and uh, when you're feeling bad to have positive coping mechanisms rather than not really having a good concept about these things, but telling them about drugs and then telling them not to do them. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So it's absolutely backwards. I, I, yeah. And, and maybe I actually think that there is a movement now to, uh, to, to, get to have more uh, therapy in schools, to have more um, even conversations with kids about... Uh, and, I, and I already see some of this happening with, with my kids... Um, you know, learning learning more about about mental health and yeah. how to how to really communicate how you're feeling. Yeah, and absolutely, and to try to take away a lot of this um, this stigma or um, or that you can't talk about certain things. I like the way that you said that um, when you said that if you're feeling bad or feeling sad, I think a good place to start is is kind of how you said it, like. Even as in you know, as they start in elementary school, like 
that it should be taught if you're feeling sad or mad or bad, they should have someone uh, it, that they can talk to about that feeling and find out what that where that feeling's coming from. And then, like you said, positive coping me uh, mechanisms to, to work on those feelings. And then someone that's professional um, can decide whether or not uh, those feelings need, you know, uh, more attention, mm. you know, or w where they're coming from. And then, you know, if they need to further investigate, you know, the, if there's a problem going on, there, there's definitely a stigma on, on mental health and nobody wants their child to suffer from mental health. Mm. But if your child is suffering from mental health, you're only hurting them by not approaching it and helping them cope with it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, and as I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, often when we, we, when we look at middle school, high school kids and, and kind of where they're, what they're thinking about, we see that a lot of times adults are still there. It just changes, right? Like the name brand shoes changes to now what the certain type of car they drive or it's, it's the status symbols. Yep. So it's, and mm -hmm. it's about kind of a certain appearance it's about right. being cool right or what what you think life is all about and mm -hmm. you know I think about your story about being um, you know you're selling drugs you're doing drugs you're numbing the pain so, somewhat I mean and so that's helping you in some way uh, at least at first you are getting some money yeah which is probably helping you with this you know the status symbol that you're trying to present mm -hmm. so you almost have all these incentives to to do that to go into right. this type of thing and i think about adults now we even incentivize uh the promotion the car the whatever whatever uh and then when we're not happy <laughs> what do we do we we you know we're, we're addicted to caffeine in the mornings we're addicted to you know alcohol or worse uh, in, in the evenings and you know I think even if it's just a little bit you know uh, I, I see the same patterns in, in all of us so I think going back to something that you said that I thought was beautiful was we all are just looking for uh, a place to belong to be a part of something bigger than us to be uh, really to, to be seen and and to, to be um, included, loved, and then a part of something more. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's just a that that might be a, a good way to to kind of start wrapping this up because, um, you know, what you said is just so universal. I think we can all relate to that, and it's for you. Unfortunately. You, you first started to kind of meet some of those needs in an unhealthy way. But now you've seen that's kind of taken you down a really, really bad road. But somehow, miraculously, you've, you've really turned everything around. And you are now not only um, a part of something bigger than yourself, but you are really turning around and helping other people uh, in their... Uh, problems with with addiction um, so one one last question if say for the people who have someone that they love right now it's struggling with addiction 
um, what advice can you give them to, to how, how to help them? Yeah, so the best advice uh, to give someone that is suffering from addiction um, is to love them and always, you know, get have hope, mm-hmm. but to not enable them. Mm-hmm. And enabling them can be giving them money. Uh, that's, you know, a, an understood one. But you can also enable them by continuing to let them stay at your home, you know, continue to let them drive your cars. You know, people are not going to hit rock bottom when they have everything provided to them. And as much as we want people to recover, they're not going to recover until they're ready. But I also think an important piece of advice is that when someone's suffering from addiction, there's ups and downs and ups and downs. But when someone says they are ready for some help, it's important at a snap of your fingers to be ready as soon as they ask for help to jump on that opportunity because they might change their mind the next couple hours or the next day. They're going to, you know, get high again and they're not going to be willing, you know, to, to go get that help. So the best advice I can give is to have resources available and as soon as someone asks for help is to provide them with that help and, and, and take advantage of any resources that are available to you. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. And it's, it's counterintuitive to actually want someone to hit rock bottom. You, you don't want that because you love them. But at the same time, if, if they don't realize that this is not working for them, right. then they're never going to be willing to completely change their, their ways. They need the gift of desperation. That's the gift I got. Mm-hmm. And the gift of desperation does not have to be uh, with the with jails or prisons or you know with law enforcement. You can definitely provide somebody the gift of desperation before uh, it gets to that point. And that's why I think that these diversion programs are real important because it's important to try to help people get their life turned around before it gets so out of control um, as mine did, you know, that it's it it's much, much more difficult, you know, to, to get your life turned around and get to a good place. Yeah. And and theologically, this actually makes a lot of a lot of sense because uh, as Christians we believe in death and resurrection. Right, uh, and that's what we talk about. I mean, that's what we see with Jesus on the cross. But it's what we talk about with baptism, that uh, we have to experience death before we can experience uh, resurrection and being made new. And it sounds like that's that's really what uh, recovery is about. Is there there has to you have to get to the end of your life as you know it. Yes, you have to experience this death, this rock bottom before you are willing to experience a totally new life. I think a good way to put it is nothing changes if nothing changes. Mm. I think that's a a really good way to put it Um, because if you just continue doing what you have been doing, it's obviously not working. And, you know, these intervention shows and stuff, uh, I, I watch them sometimes and, you know, for some people that that works but 
also for some people that runs them off you know they don't show the ones on tv that it, you know they don't always show the ones that turn out horribly but you know i think that we can love people and show them that we care that was what really you know changed my life i, I when i moved here to blowing rock um i found a church i found a community that cared about me and two sundays later i i rededicated my life to jesus as my lord and savior and was able to get sober that was a missing aspect for me i was trying to get sober for years but i was missing god and that's important <laughs> that's wow. really important that's awesome man well thank you so much for sharing and i know there's so much more to your story so um we're definitely going to continue this conversation I want to talk in the future about uh, the time you've spent in prison and what we've learned about the prison system. Um, and I would just love to learn more uh, again about how the, the steps, the programs that you've been through and how, um, it, for me, that seems like it's almost a metaphor for, uh, for life, how we c continue to keep figuring it out uh, right. as I keep talking about. Mm -hmm. And you have... Um, shown me so much I keep, I'm learning so much from you um, about how live lives can be transformed and made new um, and that when we experience these things it's not just for for ourselves but so that we can turn around and and provide opportunities for other people to experience that same type of transformation and, and new life so thank, thank you so you. much thank you Thank you so much for tuning in to the Still Figuring It Out podcast. I hope that you have found something valuable in Alex's story, and I hope that you'll continue this conversation with us because we still have so much to learn. Alex still has so much to share. And if you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction and is looking for help, please take this opportunity shoot us an email at recovery at faithbridgeumc.org that's recovery at faithbridgeumc.org and we would love to connect you with our recovery group we would love to surround you with a community uh, that loves you and that sees that you are more than just the addiction you're struggling with and for all of us that are still figuring it out. Blessings, grace, and peace. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.